Someday we will stand before a high, holy God. Sobering words to sing, aren't they? Well, the title of this morning's message, we should have it on the screen there for you, The Final Future of the Unbeliever, Hell. Kyle and I drew straws. I got the short one. You know, at this stage in my life, I'd like to think I'm more mature, responsible, more grown up than I was before. And in that supposed stage of maturity, I've come to realize that there are many things in life that I can get wrong, things that I can be mistaken about. They won't kill me, they're not the end of the world. For example, if I order Diet Dr. Pepper and I drink Dr. Pepper instead, it's not going to kill me. I know some of you anti-soda people are like, no, it will. (laughs) If I forget to study for a major test and I get a failing grade, that would be a bummer. I'd be sad. Not the end of the world. If I invest my retirement with a genius named Bernie Madoff, promising 10 to 12% return on my investments, only to find it was a Ponzi scheme and I lose it all. That would be hard. It would feel like the end of the world, but it wouldn't kill me. If I bring home a huge bouquet of flowers for my wife's birthday, three days late, that, well, actually maybe that would kill me. (laughs) Not the end of the world. I'd have to make up for that big time, but it wouldn't kill me. You know, there are many things in life that we can get wrong that won't kill us. It's not the end of the world, but there is one thing that we absolutely cannot get wrong, and that is the end of the world. It's where you and I will end up someday for all of eternity, at the moment of our death or at the moment of Christ's return. And apparently we as Americans are very confused about this topic. In a survey that was conducted by the Barner Research Group, this was done 15 years ago. This is what they found. Eight out of 10 Americans believe in life after death. Eight out of 10, 80%. Seven out of 10 Americans believe in a place called hell, a place of eternal physical punishment. 70%, I was surprised by that. In fact, a similar survey that was conducted by the Gallup poll just in 2016 found very similar responses. Apparently, we haven't changed our view as Americans. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Out of all of the Americans who believe in a literal, physical place of torment called hell, only 0.5% of them believe that they will go there when they die. So out of the 70%, only 0.5%. 5% of them 
believe that they will go there. Interesting. So here we are, American. We believe in a place of hell. We just don't think we're going to go there. That's what that survey is telling us. Only 5% of these Americans believe they're going to hell. There is a serious misunderstanding about what hell is and who goes there. And quite frankly, this is not something that you or I want to get wrong, is it? Well, the good news is that we don't have to get it wrong because the Bible clearly communicates not only what hell is, but it tells us who goes there. So our purpose this morning is to develop a biblical view of hell, which should either cause one of two things. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in Him and turned from your sin, it's going to make you respond with joy, thankfulness, and gratitude for what your Savior has done for you so that you are rescued from hell. For those of you who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is going, I hope, to be a sobering message for you to examine if this is what the Bible says, what must I do in response? And my prayer for you is that this would be the day of your salvation. Because everyone in this room has an eternal destiny. And you are either going to heaven or you are going to hell. Well, we've got our chart up on the screen. I know you probably have dreams about this. You see this in your dreams. You've been seeing it so much week after week. We've been charting our way through this series on end times. Last week, Kyle covered the great white throne judgment here to my left, your right. And again, at that great white throne judgment, those who have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior are judged and sentenced. Well, today we're going to take a look at what happens to those who reject Christ. Hell, the lake of fire. And we see that over in the red. So this morning we're going to examine three aspects of hell, three aspects of the lake of fire. Let's begin by looking at the positions on hell. What are the positions that people hold on hell. There's four major positions. The first three are deviant, unbiblical. So we're going to look at those first, because who doesn't want to look at the deviant ones first? A, universalism. If someone says, I am a universalist, it refers to this position on hell. This is the belief that God will ultimately save all of mankind. So think about that. If God saves all of mankind, who goes to hell? Answer? Nobody. We also call this the loving view. This is mostly held by people who can't fathom how a loving God could not only create such a place as hell, but actually send people there. And so the universalist says, no, our God is a God of love. It's held by liberals. It's held by Mormons. And it is heretical. They would use such verses as 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which says, in Christ, all will be made alive. Well, typically, when we see the word all, what does it mean? 
It means all. So they take this verse to mean in Christ, all, meaning all the world, will be saved. Whether you repent and believe or not, all. Is that what this verse is saying? Again, taken in the context of the rest of Scripture, no. What does it mean? Those who repent and put their faith in Christ, in Christ, those all will be saved. And they use other passages like John 12, 32 and 1 Timothy 2, 4. Now, what's the problem with this view? Well, obviously, these verses are taken out of context. They don't have a biblical view of salvation. And they don't deal with the judgment passages that we're going to look at in just a moment, like 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and Revelation 20, 15. Because if everyone goes to heaven and no one goes to hell, then what do we do with all the passages that say there are people who go to hell? And they don't have an answer. That's the first. The second is annihilationism. Annihilationism. This view simply says only those who believe in Jesus go to heaven for eternity. So they believe there's a heaven and those who believe go there. Those continuing in sin are completely annihilated. They are reduced to non-existence. They are annihilated. Hence the name. It's held by Jehovah Witnesses. It's held by Seventh-day Adventists. And... Some Protestant evangelicals. In fact, there is a well-known British pastor. You've read his books. At the end of his life, he believed this view. It was shocking to me because he exegeted Scripture. So this view is held by some within our context. They would use passages like Matthew 10, 28 and 2 Peter 3, 7. 2 Peter 3, 7 says the destruction of ungodly men. And so they would say, well, it says destruction of ungodly men. Well, what does destruction mean? Look, if I have a cake, let's say we take the Frugier's cake and we just send junior high boys in there. What will they do to your cake, Mark? They will destroy it, right? Is that what they're talking about here? Does destruction always mean absolutely destroyed? Well, we're going to see in just a little bit later. No, it doesn't mean that hell is a place where you cease to exist especially because of all the other passages of Scripture. What are the problems? Well, they build their case on less clear passages and they don't deal with the clear ones, which is a violation of literal principles of interpretation. In fact, Jesus himself taught that the rich man had a conscious existence in Luke 16. You remember the story he told of the rich man that was in Hades? Was he aware of his suffering and torment? Yes, that's why he was asking, send Lazarus to just dip his finger in water to relieve me of this pain and torment. He was conscious. He was aware. Even Matthew 25, verse 46 states this, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a compare and contrast. These will go where? Eternal judgment. These will go where? Into eternal life. If the righteous have an unending eternal life which this view holds then so must the unbeliever have an eternal punishment and I think this is the most important problem with this view sin is serious it's serious and if you remove the seriousness of sin you basically are meddling with the holiness of God This view has tons of problems. It is a deviant, unbiblical view. C, metaphorical. We also call this spiritual punishment. 
The metaphorical view argues that those who are unrepentant will never be redeemed, never be restored to a place of eternal blessing. But, and this is a big but here, the various biblical passages describing hell and divine judgment are not to be taken in a full or literal state. Hence the term metaphorical. That doesn't literally mean hell as a physical place. It's a metaphor. This means that all of those passages are not talking about physical pain, physical torment. They're talking about spiritual or mental torment. This is held by some evangelicals as well as some moderates. They would use passages like Jude 7 and Mark 25, 41, which talks about pain and suffering, but they would say it's spiritual pain, not physical. They would take the, the passage of Revelation 1.14, where it described Christ's eyes blazing fire. They would say, see, are Jesus' eyes literally going to be blazing fire? No, that's a metaphor, blazing fire. Therefore, all the passages talk about blazing fire in the lake of hell, metaphor. Can we do that? Can we just say because of those passages, all the passages dealing with judgment are to be taken spiritualized, allegorically, metaphorically? The answer is no. That's the problem with this view. It disregards biblical principles of interpretation in order to soften the horrors of hell. And it relies heavily on moral arguments. Well, if God was loving and gracious, he wouldn't suffer or send people to that kind of physical torment and suffering. Morally, God, God wouldn't do that. Those are the kind of arguments that they would use. This view also disregards the resurrection of the body at the great white throne. Think about that. Kyle talked about this last week. The Bible says at the great white throne, all of those who are dead, what happens to them? They are brought back to life so that they can stand before the great right throne and be judged. This view says that's not going to happen. It's just a metaphor. Your spirit will be judged, not your physical body. And lastly, it isn't very helpful to merely reduce physical pain if you're forced to spend an eternity of mental anguish and separation from God. Think about that. Christ is on the cross and he says, Father, why have you, what? Forsaken me. It wasn't just the physical. And was he experiencing physical torment on the cross? Yes. What else was he experiencing? The mental anguish of being in that moment separated from God, his Father, who turned his back on Christ. In fact, many theologians believe that was more horrific than the physical pain Christ experienced of crucifixion. It's hard for us to comprehend. Why have you forsaken me, Yahweh? And why did Christ, why did God forsake Christ? Because somebody had to pay the price of sin because God is holy and he hates it. So I don't think it's particularly helpful. This view says you're going to experience spiritual pain, mental pain, it's not physical. In many ways, that's worse. The idea of being separated from God. All three of these views are deviant views. They're not biblical. But I think it's helpful for you to understand that there are some professing Christians who would hold these views. Fourth, the last view, the literal view. I hold this view. I believe it is biblical. 
His view holds that we must interpret such passages on judgment and on hell, literally, indicating that there will be an actual, physical place of conscious torment for those who reject Christ as Lord and Savior. And again, I'm using key words, which we're going to explain a little bit later on. This view is held only by evangelical Protestant Christians. We use passages, you've got all of them there on your, your page. We're going to go over them in the rest of this message. And this view is most consistent with all the verses of Scripture taken within their context and interpreted properly. If you read through the Gospels, you will recognize that Jesus talks more about hell than heaven. Why does Jesus talk more about hell than heaven? Is that to scare us? I don't think so. I mean, it is scary. I don't think that was Jesus' motive. I think Jesus talked more about hell because he loves us. And he wants us to know that there is a way of escape in Christ, in himself. So he talked about hell because he didn't want you or me to go there. For many, the literal view is a tough pill to swallow. A hell that is real and eternal is an uncomfortable and unwelcome truth. However, the teaching of Scripture is too plain and the issue too important to be ignored. Those are the four positions on hell. Let's look at the particulars of hell. This is a biblical, literal view of hell, of the lake of fire. And here we're going to talk about not only what will hell be like, but who goes there. A, it is a place, a literal, physical place. Just as heaven is described as a literal future place for believers, so too will hell be a literal future place for unbelievers. I already read Matthew 25, 46, where it says these will go away into eternal punishment. Those who reject Christ, they will go into something. What is it? It's eternal punishment. Now here, I just want to pause for a moment. It's important for us to define our terms. Uh, let's get our chart back up there. Because when you're looking at red on the bottom, what do you see? Two terms. Is Hades the same thing as the lake of fire? True or false? You didn't know you were going to be quizzed this morning. Is Hades the same thing? I am trying to trick you because I love you. Is it? Now I'm really not answering, Chris. You just told me you're trying to trick me. Hades is a different place. It's a different place than hell. It's a different place than lake of fire. We're going to see that in just a moment. But the reality is those who go there are experiencing very similar things. So in that way, it is the same, but they're two totally different things. So let's talk about these terms. First of all, the Bible talks about Hades, and this is here. The Old Testament uses the word sheol. Psalm 16.10, Psalm 49.15. And the New Testament calls it Hades. That's the actual Greek word. Revelation 1.18 and other places. Sheol is often translated in the Old Testament. When you'll read it, anytime you see grave, pit, or hell, if you look up your Hebrew, because I know you guys read biblical Hebrew all the time, right? You're going to see the word Sheol. And sometimes that word is used talking about a physical grave. So for those of us who have been to a graveside burial service, when you're looking at the body, where is the spirit? Is the spirit in the body? No. So that spirit is where? Either heaven or 
Hades. The spirit is there. Where is the body? Lowered into the grave. So often, Sheol is translated and it's referring to a physical body in a physical grave. It can also be used to pit. And it's also talking about Hades. And that's the second way that this word is used. Describes the intermediate state of death. And it's between death and hell. So basically, from the moment of Adam and Eve, anyone who has died, who has rejected the Messiah, all the way up until the great white throne, where is their body? Where is it? It's in the pit. It's in the grave. It's in the ground. If they have rejected Christ, where is their soul or spirit, their immaterial part? In Hades. So that's how Hades is different. And we call that the intermediate state. It's important for us to understand that's different. And it is a place of conscious torment. Turn with me to Luke 16. This is one of the clearest passages where Jesus himself describes Hades. Luke 16, verse 23. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is a long story that Jesus told about this rich man. And the poor man, Lazarus. But in verse 23, now let me start in verse 22. The poor man died, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. So when it says he was buried, what part of him was buried? His body. But then in verse 23, what do we find? In Hades, he, being the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in what? Torment. His body is in the ground. Where is his spirit? In Hades. And is he enjoying it there? Is it a party? Is he living the dream? No. It's torment. It's pain. It's suffering. So that is the intermediate state. And Kyle will probably talk about the intermediate state for those of us who are Christians. Because as Christians, where does our body go when we die? In the grave. Where does our spirit go? In heaven. So that's Sheol and Hades. And that's totally different from the lake of fire. Now Jesus uses this Greek word, Gehenna, multiple times, and it's translated hell. If you just read through the Gospels, anytime Jesus is talking about hell, it's this word, Gehenna. And in Revelation, John is the only one who uses the term lake of fire. So let's talk about this word, Gehenna, how this is different from Hades. This word comes from the Hebrew, Gehinnom, which refers to the Valley of Hinnom on the south and east sides of Jerusalem. Now, this was essentially Jerusalem's garbage dump. came to be known as the place of burning. I never fully understood this concept until I moved to Albania and lived there for nine years. If you've been to a place outside of America, and in America, someone comes to your house and takes your nice contained garbage and puts it up and then takes it away and hides it. You don't know where it goes. You're just glad it's gone. In most of the world, that's not the case. Nobody comes and picks up their garbage. So what do they do? They walk to the nearest cliff and do what? Chuck it. So we're driving through Albania, through these little villages, and you would just come around a corner, and all of a sudden there's a whole hillside just littered with trash and garbage. Rats the size of a cat. Dogs, feral chickens, crazy chickens. We call them trash chickens. We just hope that was not what we were being served at the local restaurants. 
And sometimes the garbage trucks wouldn't come, so what would the Albanians do? They would burn the trash. You'd drive by and you would just smell the burning, ruin, and destruction of a pit. That's what this was for Jerusalem, the Valley of Gehinnom. It was also known as the place of idolatrous human sacrifices. Babies were burned to Baal and other false gods. First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles 28, Jeremiah 7. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus uses this word, Gehenna, do you think his audience knew what he was talking about? In fact, depending on how close he was to it, they could probably, what, smell it. They could see it. That was the place where things go to die or because they're already dead and they're burned. It was a very, very vivid picture. That's what Gehenna is. Now turn with me to Luke 12. Let's look at some of these passages where Jesus uses this term, Gehenna. Luke 12, verse 4. Jesus says this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after they have no more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. To cast into hell, into a physical place called Gehenna. This is the final eternal place of punishment, and it's different from Hades in that both the resurrected body and the soul will be tormented for all of eternity. How do we know that? Well, the parallel passage of this passage in Luke is Matthew 10, 28. Jesus adds something there. He says, both the soul and the body in hell. For some reason, it's not recorded here in Luke's account. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Verse 41, Matthew 25, verse 41. We've looked at this passage a number of times. Matthew 25, verse 41. It says this, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been, been prepared for the devil in his angels. And then in verse 6, what does he say? These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. According to verse 41, what is Jesus saying? Who was hell? Gehenna, the lake of fire. Who was it originally created for? Satan, the devil, and his angels. The Antichrist, the beast, all of those who followed Satan against God. And this will now also be used as a place to punish those who reject Christ and reject his gospel message. Just a couple examples of how God, or Christ has used Gehenna. Now turn to Revelation 20, where we see John using this term, lake of fire. Revelation Revelation 20.10 says this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into, and here it is, the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Lake of fire is only used in Revelation by John. It's another phrase for hell. It's the final rest of place of devil, his angels, and all unbelievers. We know that because look just a couple of verses down at verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown where? Into the lake of fire. That's why oftentimes when artists try to depict hell on canvas or in some kind of photo or painting, typically what is happening to the people, how they enter into hell? What are they, do, what are they doing? They're falling. And they get that idea from these texts that talk about they're being cast into or they're being thrown into this lake of fire. That cartoons are notorious for creating false ideas and pictures of hell, aren't they? I remember watching cartoons as a kid, watching pictures of Satan running the show, laughing in hell. Is Satan going to be laughing in hell? I mean, the cartoons always had this maniacal laugh. <laughs> and what did he have in his hand? Pitchfork. And what was up here? And what was back here? Where does that come from? Well, what does Revelation describe Satan as? What beast? A dragon. It's just like Satan, the father of lies, to put half-truth even into our cartoons so that we get the idea that Satan is in charge of hell. Satan is ruling that place. Hell is not some casual topic that we should make jokes about. Why? There is absolutely no exit once you are there. There is no escape hatch. It's not, hell is not an escape room. Hey, can I pay $40? I want to get in there and I want to get out 30, 30 minutes or less. There is no eject button. It's a terrifying, horrific place for those who reject Christ and His free gift of salvation. Hell is a literal physical place but that's not all B it is the final eternal state it is the final eternal state this is permanent turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7 2 Thessalonians 1 7 2 Thessalonians 1 7 says this And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who what? Do not know God. And those who what? Do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of of his power. Who goes to hell? Those who do not know him and those who do not obey. And that's why Matthew 7 21, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all these good things? And what does the Lord say to them? Depart from me. I never, what, knew you. You thought your good works were enough to get you into heaven? To, to rescue you from the horrors of hell? You thought that was going to be enough just to say, I know you. I did some things in your, your name. 
And the Lord's going to say, I know your heart. You didn't do that for me. You did that for you. Depart from me. And they will be cast into hell. See, I think when Paul is talking about this destruction, the, what they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, I think this has the idea of ruin and waste. Loss and ruin are their eternal state. Because if hell is a conscious experience, they are aware, particularly those who heard the good news and willfully rejected it. And for the rest of their eternity, they will be suffering in ruin. And when you think about eternity, that's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? You ever used permanent glue? How permanent is permanent glue? That's like false advertising. Why in the world do they call it permanent? And when does permanent glue fail? At the least convenient time. Is there anything permanent in this life? Well, the things that say they're eternal. It's hard for us to comprehend, to wrap our minds around forever. Because when you are in hell, that physical, literal place, there is no hope. Well, see, it is conscious suffering. It just goes from bad to worse. Again, back Luke 16, this rich man was suffering in Hades. He was consciously in agony in this flame, verse 24. He was in place of torment in verse 28. And we look over at Revelation 20.10. And we already read this, but Revelation 20.10. The devil who was deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beasts, the false prophet, are also. And they will be tormented when? Day and night forever. How is it possible to torment someone day and night forever if they're not conscious and able to experience it? Think about that. Because right after they're thrown in, who else gets thrown in? All the rest whose names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's conscious, both Hades and the Lake of Fire. You know, I had been a cop for about four years in Los Angeles. I saw a lot in four years. It was amazing living in L.A. But I will never forget the first time I drove up to the scene of a horrific car collision. I pull up, I was right around the corner, what happened, came over the radio, my partner and I showed up, parked the car, jump out. What was a car had been smashed. Looked like it was put in a gar- one of those garbage disposals. My partner goes to the driver's side, I run around to the passenger side. The passenger is writhing in pain, weeping, screaming, literally thrashing. It looked like someone had taken that car and just molded the metal around their body. And all I could do was hold their hand as we waited for the ambulance and the rescue crew to literally, with the jaws of life, take them out of that twisted metal hulk. God designed you and me that when the pain becomes so intense, so unbearable, what happens physically to us? We pass out. We fall into what? Unconsciousness. You realize that's God's blessing? It's God's blessing. The brain shuts down when the pain 
gets simply too difficult to bear. An unconscious person can't feel pain. That's why when they fall unconscious, what happens to their thrashing and their weeping and their screaming? What happens? Just ceases. This will never happen in hell. Never. The pain will be so intense. The pain will be so unbearable. And your physical body and your spirit in torment forever lasting will never cease to end. You will never faint. You will never have a moment of painlessness. That's why in Matthew 8, 12, this sense of torment and conscious suffering is reinforced by this term, weeping and gnashing of teeth. When do we gnash our teeth? Ladies, you might do it when your husband did something bad. (sighs) When do we really gnash our teeth? Anyone had a baby? Guy's like, yeah, I had sympathy pain during that. No, you didn't. I've heard childbirth is incredibly painful. Why do we gnash our teeth? The pain is so intense you can't, what, help it. The Bible uses these terms to describe what hell will be like. You can't weep, you can't grind your teeth if you're unconscious. These passages depict a literal, physical, conscious suffering of intense, horrific pain. This is not something you want to get wrong. D, it is eternal fire. Hell is described as a ceaseless burning in which the objects of judgment are not consumed. This is hard for us to fathom. It's described as a lake of fire in Revelation 19.20 and 21.8. It's described as a furnace of fire in Matthew 13, 50. When you think of furnace, what do you think of? An oven. What goes in the oven? Things that need to be cooked. In Matthew 25, 41, describes it as an eternal fire. This fire is unquenchable, according to John the Baptist. Luke 3, 17, here's what John the Baptist said. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Who are the wheat? Believers. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If something is unquenchable, what does that mean? It can never be quenched. This reminds me of a foundry filled with those huge pots. I think they call them crucibles. Is that right? Crucibles filled with burning, red-hot liquid steel. Have you ever seen those? And you look from a distance and you can see the heat literally rising from it. Just imagine being lowered and thrown into one of those crucibles filled with burning, hot liquid steel. If that were to happen to you and me today, what would happen? Our body would be consumed But the picture here is that you will be put into a lake of fire 
and your body will never be consumed. You say, if hell is eternally fiery, how will the body not be consumed? Well, the simple answer is that at the great white throne of judgment, which Kyle taught on last week, unbelievers are resurrected to judgment. We saw that from John 5, 28, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Even the unbelievers, they're resurrected. They're brought from dead to life. And at that moment, they are given a body which will not burn. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this about hell, trying to explain this. He said this, There is a real fire in hell, as truly as you have a real body, a fire exactly like that which we have on this earth, except this, it will not consume you, though it will torture you. You have seen asbestos lying amid red-hot coals, but not consumed. So your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed, with your nerves laid raw by searing pain, yet never desensitized for all its raging fury. And the acrid smoke of the sulfurous fumes searing your lungs, choking your breath, you will cry out for the mercy of death, but it shall never, never, no, never come. Why do you think Satan wants us to think of hell like the cartoon? This is horrific. And have you ever experienced serious pain? Have you? I never had a baby. I'm glad you're glad to know that. I had my tonsils out as an adult. It was one of the most incredibly painful things I've ever been through. For eight days, I literally drank Vicodin by the bottleful. And it didn't touch the pain. Every time I swallowed, it was like someone was burning a hot coal down my throat. For eight days. You know what got me through that? I knew that as my body was healing, the pain would go away. If you are in hell, you will know with certainty that that pain will never, ever go away. And you will burn, but you will not be consumed. This is not something you want to get wrong. E, it is darkness. It's darkness. Hell is marked by darkness. Matthew 8, 12 calls it the outer darkness. Matthew twenty two thirteen. Matthew 25, 30. Even Jude 13 calls it black darkness. That seems a little unnecessary and redundant, right? Isn't darkness by very definition black? Why does Jude call it black darkness? As if it's more than dark. You see, as heaven is characterized by the light of God's presence in Revelation 21, 23. Come back next week for the good news. Heaven is going to be filled with glorious light of God. Well, just as heaven is characterized by God's light, so hell will be marked by the total and permanent banishment from the presence of God. As 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 states, we already read it, away from the presence of the Lord. Hell is going to be dark. So somehow it's fiery and burning, and somehow it's dark. Every good thing comes from God, from rain to food, to air to health to friendship, to that little junior hire sitting next to you. 
in hell, every good thing is removed as God's presence is absent. And so this darkness is not just pitch black. And remember, people use darkness to torture, even today. Sensory deprivation. I looked it up on the internet. Darkness in and of itself is horrific. But I don't think hell is just going to be dark. I think it's going to be also the absence of everything good and loving. This is really the epitome of banishment from the blessings of God's kingdom. Does this sound like a place where you and your friends are going to go to party? I can't tell you how many friends I had in high school and college growing up in Los Angeles that say, hey, dude, I don't know you need your Jesus. Me and my friends are going to go to hell and we're going to party. Woo! This beer in this hand, live in the dream. Is that what hell's going to be like? Is it going to be just one big party? No, you're going to be alone forever in agony. F, it is the second death. It is the second death. Hell is described as the second and therefore final death. Revelation 20, 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And also in Revelation 21, 8 but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, the first death involves separation of the soul from our body. That's what we refer to as death. That's the first death. But the second death involves separation of both the soul and the body from God. Believers have full and free access to the presence of God, but those experiencing this second death are totally excluded. Again, we see this in Revelation 22, verse 14. Revelation 22, 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates, by the gates, into the city. In contrast, in verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Why are they outside? Because they rejected Christ. They don't have access to that tree of life. Who goes to hell? Quite simply, those who reject Christ. And if you reject Christ, you're going to demonstrate that rejection of Christ through your hatred for God and your love for the world and the sins which they love. This is why so often in Scripture we find what I call sinless. You ever come across a sin list? Like you remember Galatians 5.19? The deeds of the flesh are, and then what does it do? It lists all of these sins, one after the, one after the another. 1 Corinthians 6.9 is another example. Given to indicate that those who do these things as a pattern of their life will go to hell. What does it mean when it's a pattern Simply means it's unbroken. There's no repentance. There's no true repentance. You are characterized by those sins that you do. And why do you do them? You do them because you have rejected Christ and you are enslaved to them. Because the terrifying thing in both of these passages, it says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is your life characterized 
by deeds of unrighteousness this morning? A person's deeds will always reflect what's in their heart. Because if a person loves Christ, they will strive to serve and to love Him through obedience and commitment. Again, we're not talking about sinlessness. None of us are sinless. We're talking about a, a greater desire to please God in my life. If a person loves the pleasures of the world, and they're going to seek to serve themselves by doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And they become characterized by those deeds. Another way to say this is a person's evil deeds simply authenticate their past rejection of Christ. That's the second death. And then lastly, hell has degrees of punishment. I don't know if you were aware of this, but there will be degrees of punishment. In fact, Scripture indicates that some will suffer more than others. Turn with me to back to Matthew 11. I wish I could develop this point longer. I'm going to touch on it and let you study it more on your own. Matthew eleven twenty one says this. Woe to you, Teresim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And for Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What is he talking about? These people heard the truth. Christ had gone. He had proclaimed his message of good news. And what did they do? They were indifferent. They didn't care. That's what he's talking about here. Indifference. Indifference to Christ is worse than what was going on in Sodom. And when we think of that Old Testament city, Sodom, what is the first thing that you think of? It was the capital of homosexuality. That's what it was known for. And what they're saying is if miracles had happened in Sodom that happened in you, they would have repented long ago. You had the truth, and what did you do? You rejected it with your indifferent, hard heart. And what does he say? It will be worse for you. It will be worse. Turn over to Romans 2.5. Romans 2.5. Romans 2.5 says this. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What does it mean to store up something? If you like cans of soup and you store them up, what will be the result of storing up soup? Cans of soup. You will have closets full of soup. You are like canned soup prepper 101, right? When it comes, I'm going to eat soup. It means you accumulate. There is an increase of. So what does it mean when it says you are storing up wrath? 
It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. In fact, Luke 12, 42 to 48, I don't have time to read that, but it's the, the parable that Jesus tells of the steward and the slaves, and the master goes away, and the slaves, they're like, oh, the master's not coming around, so what do they do? They begin beating people, they begin eating and drinking and getting drunk. And basically, in that story, Jesus says, look, the ones who knew and were indifferent, it's going to be worse for you. It's going to be worse. The degree of punishment will follow the extent to which the ungodly behavior was willful. Willful. Those who didn't know will receive less punishment versus those who know and willfully reject Christ. Mark 12.40 is another passage talking about spiritual hypocrites being punished more than others. So just as there will be degrees of reward in heaven, so too will there be degrees of punishment in hell. In fact, I think this seems to be the purpose of all of those books that Kyle talked about last week at the Great White Throne of Judgment. What's written in those books? We're not talking about the Lamb's Book of Life. What's written in those books? It's all the deeds. And God's going to look at those and he's going to say, you have stored up this much wrath. You, you stored up this much wrath. This is your sentence for all of eternity. You, you stored up this much wrath for all of eternity. If God hates sin this much, that there will even be varying degrees of punishment for it, how can we so easily excuse our sin? Let us never become so desensitized to our sin. Let us never make excuses for our sin. God hates it. Well, we've looked at the positions, we've looked at the particulars. Let's lastly look at the problem of hell. You say, problem? What's the problem? One question. Is hell fair? Is hell fair? You recognize that many of those deviant views that we covered in that first point come because their answer to this question is radically different. And if you say no, then you are left going back into Scripture with that lens and saying, I'm going to reread Scripture because it's not fair. Therefore, we're going to reinterpret Scripture to make it say something else because my loving God would never sentence me to hell. Have you heard someone say that? It's probably one of the most common responses that you get when hell comes up in a conversation. God is a just God. He's righteous. He is holy. He cannot sin. In fact, Acts 17.31 reminds us that, and I quote, He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. And He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Who is the man that He appointed? Who is the one that He raised from the dead? Christ, the God-man. God is a holy God, set apart from sin. God is our creator. We read about that in our psalm this morning. If He created us, then who owns us? God does. And if He owns us, who has the authority to tell us how to think and live and speak? God does. So when God says, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you shall surely, what? Die. 
He has the authority to make that rule. And when we violate that rule, what happens? The wages of sin is death. From the very beginning, it was that way. And when you and I come to recognize the fact that God created us, owns us, has authority over us, that we chose our way. We said, God, stiff arm, no, I want it my way. You say, that's not just for God to sentence you to hell. What is just? What do all of us justly deserve? Unless there's anyone here that is sinless. Do I have any takers? Anybody perfect? Anybody never, ever, ever sinned once? Not a bad thought, not a little white lie. I only stole one piece of bubble gum. That's the only bad thing I ever did in my life. Then you're damned too. And that's what the Bible says. If you say you are without sin, you're a liar. All have sinned. All have fallen short. You say that's not just. The reality is what you and I justly deserve is hell. That's just. That's fair. But God, because of His rich love for us and His grace and His mercy, what did He do? He sent His Son to take that punishment that you and I deserve. Christ took it in our place. And He suffered. And God abandoned Him and turned His back on Him. So that whoever might repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ would have eternal life. That's not just. That's, that doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem fair. But that's why God's gift is free. And it's of His grace. Because we don't deserve it. So I'm here to tell you this morning. Not only is hell fair. Hell is what you and I deserve. But the fact that God provided a way of escape should cause you and I to respond with thankfulness and gratitude for what He did. Justice would demand a penalty for our sin. And those who reject this free gift of His Son, they will receive what they have chosen. If you reject Christ, you are choosing hell. That's why often we refer to this doctrine as not punishment, but retribution. Why do we make that distinction? Punishment makes it sound like, oh, I did something bad, you're just going to spank me. Retribution is, no, I did something wrong, I deserve that. I chose to do this, therefore I deserve the consequences. We refer to it as retribution. And this is God's just, righteous retribution for their deeds. I just want to read a quote for C.S. Lewis. I have it on the back of your handout. C.S. Lewis masterfully put it this way. He said this, Sin is man saying to God throughout life, Go away and leave me alone. Hell is God's finally saying to man, You may have your wish. It is God's leaving man to himself as man has chosen. God offers this free gift of salvation to any who would repent and put their faith in Christ as Savior and as Lord. But for those who choose to reject Christ, they are choosing hell. 
just by way of conclusion, do you have a right biblical view of hell this morning? Believers who understand the awful reality of hell should be overwhelmed with gratitude that God has delivered them from the wrath to come. It should lead us to a deeper appreciation of the suffering that our Savior endured for the full penalty of our sin. And it should lead us to passionately evangelize as we recognize that our lost loved ones, friends, neighbors, person who works at the gas station that we go to, that without Christ, they are going to hell. Knowing this awful reality of eternal judgment, believers should be consumed with warning the lost, just like the rich man was. That's why he was asking, send Lazarus back, tell my brothers, so that they don't make the same mistake I did. Occupants of hell, if we were able to bring them up from Hades right now, they would only have one message for us. Don't follow us here. Don't do it. They would deliver that message with passion because they know firsthand the horrors of hell and the hopelessness of eternity. As Thomas Hobbes said, hell is truth seen too late And while there are many things that you can get wrong in this lifetime without it being the end of the world, this is not one of them. Don't wait until it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask and pray that if there are any here this morning that do not have assurance of their salvation, if they are not sure that when they die they are going to heaven, Lord God, this is not something that any of us would want for them to get it wrong. So I pray that you, by the power of your word and spirit, would open their eyes to their need of a Savior. Would you grant them eyes to see and ears to hear? Lord, would this be the day of their salvation? And I pray, Heavenly Father, for those of us who have this hope, the hope of heaven because of Christ and the gospel. Lord God, would this message motivate us to hate sin? Would it motivate us to thankfulness and gratitude? And would it motivate us to tell the world there is a way of escape in Christ? So in his name we pray, amen.